0: Five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the
1: Falcon 9. Falcon 9 is Hi, I'm Mark Boucher and this is the SpaceQ Podcast. My guest today is Vinny Capizzuto, the Chief Technology Officer of Ariane. Aerion started as a partnership between Iridium and air navigation service provider Nav Canada. From its founding in 2012, the partnership has added several other air navigation service providers, including ENAV from Italy, NATS from the UK, Navire from Denmark, and Ireland's IAA. Aerion has hosted Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast, or ADSB, receivers built into each of the 66 satellites in the Iridium-next constellation. That constellation just had its last batch of satellites successfully launched earlier this month by SpaceX. Ariane space-based ADS-B will, for the first time in history, provide global data to track airplanes in real time. At present, only 30% of the Earth is covered, primarily land area. When the system is fully operational later this year, the roughly 70% of the earth, primarily oceanic and remote areas that didn't have ADS-B receiver coverage will now be covered. For the aviation industry, this is a game changer. In emergency situations, having real-time situational awareness of what's happening to a plane will be available. As well, knowing the precise location of aircraft will lead to other benefits, including reducing pilot response time to weather events, reducing the required separation gaps between aircraft, and addressing navigational errors before they become larger issues. For the airlines, it should mean cost savings as planes will be able to fly more efficient routes, saving on time and fuel. As you'll hear from Vinny, He provides historical context to what their new service means, as well as explaining the technology advances and briefly discussing the business case. Listen in. Welcome, Vinny, to the SpaceQ podcast. How are you? Uh, Very well, thank you. Uh, I'm uh, very pleased to have you on the show. It's... um, Uh, We just had the Iridium-8 launch, which was successful yet again. Uh, And now your uh, full uh, constellation of Iridium satellites are uh, on orbit, getting commissioned, uh, the new ones, and all your sensors uh, are out there. So before we get into some of those details, can you give me an idea of how the idea of Arion actually came to be? Yeah, I think this
0: is quite interesting. And, And again, thank you for allowing me the opportunity to tell this story. Um, so, you know, it starts off with a company called Iridium, actually, um, who has deployed um, very uh, satellites in the late 90s to support the, the telecommunication boom, essentially. Um, this would be able to provide, you know, phone coverage everywhere in the world. Um, that was their business model, and they had some challenges, um, but they, they did deploy their infrastructure, which consists of 66 satellites in low Earth orbit around the Earth. And um, what was very unique also at the time was that in this low-Earth orbit kind of uh, network, it's, it's really um, each satellite talks to the satellites around it. So it's a mesh network, and that anywhere you could be on the Earth, you would be picked up by one satellite, and then they would use the mesh network to get it to the optimal location to downlink it to the Earth. And this was a very unique idea, and um, what happened was as the, as the company matured, their infrastructure aged, and they reached a point around the 2008 time frame where they had to make a determination on, you know, what do they do to improve that infrastructure. So essentially replace the, the, uh, the satellites that are there. Um, and you could imagine something as uh, technically challenging this is like a tech refresh um, it's 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 a big deal, and so they had to go through the 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 uh, you know raising of the capital to do this. they had to go through the the, the acquisitions to determine who the appropriate um, vendor would be for building the new satellite. Um, and then they also had to uh, lock in who was going to deliver the satellites up into space, which, by the way, was SpaceX in a very early part of their, um, their life cycle. And, um, and they've done a great job. And um, so as part of that building of the new satellite, the question was raised, hey, you know, what could we add to our satellite what more can we add? What new function could we do? And, and that's where they came up with this concept of a hosted payload. And they actually created like a, a group within Iridium that went and explored all the different ideas that you could possibly come up with that would go on that new satellite infrastructure as a hosted payload. So someone that's basically renting the space, the power and the bandwidth for an alternative um, function other than the, the telecommunication function that Iridium was already providing. Um, So that's pretty much how it started. Uh, Arian became um, an LLC in 2011. They made the determination that the hosted payload should be for automatic dependent surveillance broadcast um, or ADSB reception, which is you know something um, from a business case perspective made sense because there was mandates or rules starting to uh, you know, the pop up globally, which was forcing the Boeings and the Airbus to start manufacturing the planes with this capability on it. So we knew there was gonna be a high population um, of, of aircraft with this capability embedded in it. Um, and so we would essentially be able to just listen to the RF transmissions coming off the planes and be able to track them globally.
1: Now, I mean, somebody in this round table uh, came up with this idea. Um, do you know who that was? Yeah, I would say you know Don Toma, our CEO, was
0: uh, part of Iridium, yeah. um, and you know he had he had uh, been the one kind of driving this kind of hosted payload uh, consortium that was essentially. You know, bringing uh people from around uh, the world to kind of present their ideas um also one of the uh, concepts I believe in germany they were they were um they were fielding um a kind of prototype radio just to see if they could even receive the signal and so some of this kind of information was you know like like all good ideas, there are permutations of it, just like we always say you know you know the Wright brothers are uh, first for powered flight, but meanwhile I mean. Flight and ideas around flight were maturing in many different fronts. Right, um, it's just they were they were successful. Um, so this is kind of an idea that you know it was just taking ADSD and, and instead of having it on the ground infrastructure, it was just putting it up in space and 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 being able to see aircraft globally. Um, so. You know, I would put it squarely on the shoulder of our CEO um, because he was part of that community um, where they were vetting all the different ideas. And, you know, I don't think it's one singular person. I think it's really a community.
1: Right. Now, I'm trying to get uh, my audience to to wrap their heads around this. So these are sensors that are on planes. They provide their location on an ongoing basis. Um, And because the sensors are... Uh, sorry, the, there are sensors on the planes and there's uh, receivers on the uh, the satellites. And this is the first time that we've done this from space. And so what's the uh, advantage um, for doing it in space? Yeah. Um, so they, they call them transponders
0: on the airplane. And currently today, um, those transponders are interoperable, meaning that they can work with a radar or they could work with a, a ground-based ADS-B. Um, receiver station with a with an antenna, um, and so you can see the model already. It has a, a, a tie to the earth, right? Um, and so you can have great surveillance wherever there's land. Um, and obviously, you know, the earth is uh, is like three quarters of water, and and we're looking at. Um, uh, a, a large percentage of flights in the time they fly in these overseas flights uh, are not really being monitored from the standpoint of surveillance. Now the controller is still talking to the pilot. The pilot has onboard navigation systems like GPS and other devices um, that help them navigate point to point where they're going um, and and you know the, the third leg of the of the, of the triangle is Surveillance, the, you know, the, the acronym is CNS or COM, NAV, and Surveillance. These are the things you need, those are the ingredients you need to have like a full-fledged, very safe system, right? Pilot has to be able to navigate, controller needs to be able to talk to the pilot and provide assistance because the controller is nothing but an extension of the eyes of the, of, the, of the pilot. And then surveillance, you know, so if you do it without surveillance, the, pilot, the controller is more or less talking to multiple pilots in the area and then using that information to kind of inform the pilot so he can see and avoid the aircraft the other aircraft um with surveillance you open that up even more because now whether it be radar or our our system or adsb um you're able to have like a picture and you can graphically see in three dimensions where every everyone um, is located and you can do a better job of communicating to the pilot um, what the what the environment looks like that they're flying in, right? So that's kind of the job of the air traffic controller. So this is meant to assist the air traffic controller. And as I stated, we didn't invent ADS-B. ADS-B is a standard that's been developed. Um, there are rules and mandates going on in effect across the globe in multiple countries. There's like 12 or 13 countries that have this um, mandate in, in effect. And, and like for the United States, January 1st, 2020, is, is when you have to comply. Um, and, um, you know, Europe has some... Uh, uh, One in 2020 as well, and Canada is contemplating a, a rule, a mandate. Um, currently, um, uh, Canada has implemented this from a, a more unique way. They basically built um, ADS-B capabilities over Hudson Bay. Um, That's not oceanic, but it's uh, you know rough, rough uh, area, hard to deploy uh, infrastructure um, in, the, in the in the surface around that, and, and so um what they've done is implemented like the ground stations and provided a new service and basically said if you're equipped with ADS-B, you'll get you know a preferred altitude that works better for your aircraft and if you're not equipped we still give you a service it's just not at uh what we would call the preferred altitude so so you know no harm no foul but um those who were equipped got better services um and so canada is now my understanding is contemplating Doing a rulemaking and, and that obviously requires to be socialized with the community at large, um, you know, um, which is typical of any type of mandate that, that goes out as law.
1: So currently, ADSB is limited in that um, uh, there's only so many uh, sensors uh, that are out there because they're they're land-based and uh, and by putting these space-based uh, ADSB sensors, you now have global coverage and yeah, yeah.
0: No, I was going to say I forgot to answer that part of your question, so thank you for prompting me on that. Um, And and exactly that, it is, um, even from a land-based perspective, you reach the point of, is it cost-effective to put anything in? So like Alaska, many parts of Canada are challenging um, to put in infrastructure, right? I mean, they're just in remote locations, so it's not just oceanic problems, it's remote, mountainous areas. You know, it just doesn't, you can put it in, but can you you maintain it? Can you get people to it during the winter months? Um, so it's all those different challenges, and then obviously the oceanic element of it is there's no way to deploy a ground infrastructure, so therefore you know, those have been the challenges. And in another aspect of it is it's, some countries have security issues, some countries have, um, you could say, uh, a workforce that maybe doesn't have the, the skill set for maintaining infrastructure, and I think something that's unique about what Ariane is offering here is it's surveillance as a service. Um, and I think that's a key discriminator. We're not selling boxes, we're selling a service. Um, our service will be uh, certified um, so that it could be used for air traffic control purposes. And that's another differentiator. And um, you know, these are the things that I think offer for countries that um, it, basically you could leapfrog um, with technology and with this uh, service concept, you could leapfrog providing um, improved um, surveillance capabilities whether it's for safety or efficiency depending upon what it is you're trying to do. Um, each country is designated through ICAO the International Civil Aviation Organization a chunk of airspace and um, so your job is to manage that airspace um, and so you know it could, you could either try to improve your safety or you and try to improve efficiency and maintain your safety um, right so these are the things that the ANSPs the Air Navigation Service Providers of the world uh, t- attempt to address and um, you know this is a classic problem right it's been a hole in surveillance for years and um, you know, even with the terrestrial-based ADS-B, which was a step forward from radar, which was a centralized kind of concept of plant something and it sees 60 miles or 200 miles around it. To but you still can't see through mountains, you still can't see through buildings, right? To a distributed network of uh, of receivers like cell phones. Um, so now you, you you saw what cell phones did to um, you know to the industry. Um, so this is kind of the same concept, right? The the ground-based ADS-B kind of opened the door for just decentralized, Centralized kind of capability where you can get into these remote areas, but you still had challenges. Um, and so space-based ADS-B basically um, t- addresses those challenges terrestrially and opens up a whole new frontier regarding the oceanic airspace.
1: So in terms of, let's say, aviation history, uh, this is one of those significant moments. Am I, is that right? I feel it is. I mean, um, I could tell you I've been in the surveillance
0: business for over 30 years. Um, I used to work in companies that built radars. Um, you know, I'm a radar hugger, um, but, I, but I also like all technology. And, you know, there have been the evolution of technology. Um, and radar was a big deal. You know, this kind of spawned out of World War II. Um, and look, we're still using them, right? I mean, that, that technology, that concept um, has been around for a long time and, um, and and has been, you know, really important to the growth of air traffic control. Um, especially after the advent of a uh, series of accidents, um, you know, back in the 50s. Um, and so, you know, radar in its first, um, you know, version of it was really just what we call skin paint. It blasted RF energy out, whatever reflected off the plane. It gave you a blob on the screen, which is better than nothing. But they still didn't, so it gave you a range and bearing, but they didn't know altitude. They added a transponder on the aircraft. They added an interrogator on the radar, where now it became cooperative. The radar interrogated the aircraft the aircraft reply and now you you embedded in that you got the altitude from the altimeter on the aircraft and you now ended up with you know range bearing and altitude so you got three dimensions um, and then as this continuation of evolution by the way you know even that had a, its limitations this kind of interrogation reply response there was a um, the 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 one of the stepping stones in the surveillance roadmap that I think was big and monumental um, was the uh, advent of something called Modas it It was a a, a way to selectively interrogate the aircraft. So in the older version that I just explained to you, you basically looked inside this big window and you may have hit five or 10 aircraft and they all replied at the same time. And if they were at the same range, but different bearing, and but within the beam width of the antenna, you got confusion, right? You just had like two people talking at you at the same time, you couldn't decode what you heard. And that's essentially what happened on the radar. You dropped targets, um, it wasn't perfect. Well, they invented this kind of capability where each aircraft had a unique address. And you can interrogate just that address, um, and they had this concept of you do an all call, and everyone replies. You create a list of everyone's specific address, and then from that, I can then selectively interrogate just the one I want to interrogate. Why this was important was it complemented some another component, which was an airborne version of this surveillance capability called TCAS, which was to um uh, basically collision avoidance system right so traffic collision avoidance system and what TCAS does to the pilot it's a last-ditch effort it's a it's a it's a flying radar and it's using that same concept of selectively interrogating aircraft around it and it's making a decision on if you're approaching too close you're closing the distance one aircraft gets uh you know basically a resolution advisory and tells it to go up and the other aircraft gets a resolution advisory and tells it to go down. And that way you avoid two planes crashing. And so the MODAS radar and the TCAS uh, capability were totally integrated and complementary. And one was to feed the controller and one was to feed the pilot, and it was to prevent um, and improve the surveillance picture for situational awareness and to ensure decision making was r- really key. So that happened like the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s where all this kind of rolled out and there was years of research before that so you could say in the 70s they started this but it didn't really roll out earnestly till the 80s and 90s um, and I would put that as a big check mark right so radar invented MODEST radar with TCAS um, and then I would say space based adsb
1: Now Obviously, it's pretty clear that there's a uh, uh, safety aspect to this that's going to obviously benefit everybody. Um, Now, from an industry perspective, airlines' perspective, um, from what I understand, because they have more information available, they can fly better routes. Uh, In theory, this is going to... um, uh, Produce potential fuel savings. Um, from what I read, it could be lower environmental impact because flights might be a little bit shorter. Are those things actually going to to happen because of uh, of this technology and the way it's you know implemented? Because now you've got that extra data coming from space, and from a public perspective, does this mean that we might actually see a little bit lower lowering of airfares? <laughs>
0: So um, I always I, it's a tricky question isn 't it? Uh, the lowering the airfare is, is, should be direct, directly proportional to the investments you're making um, in your in your infrastructure. Um, but you know, you would, one would also suggest that when fuel goes down they'd lower the airfare also. Um, and what I would say is what happens is the airlines have their up days, and then when fuel goes the up, they have their down days, right and I think in the average, they just want to stay above water or, or obviously turn a profit. So, you know, um, this clearly is um, multi-pronged, right? I mean, there's the business case around this is depending upon what the ANSP is attempting to, to fix. Or what problem are they trying to solve? You always got to start with that, right? I mean, just because you have the technology doesn't need you doesn't mean you have to run off and, and use it. But in this case, I mean, it's clear to us that um, you know from an, a multiple user perspective. So let's talk about the air navigation service providers, um, the Nav Canadas of the world, right? The Nats of, of the world, right? Um, these are these are um, corporatized entities that provide a service, and their job. Um, in, in some cases, they're for profit. so whatever um, uh, whatever improvements they get um, in, in regards to efficiencies within their own operations, you know, those monies are to be reused to kind of, you know, completely um, fix the infrastructure or maintain the infrastructure. I liken it to, like, you, you see airways in the sky, well, you don't see them. And that's the difference. But there are potholes in there, just like there are potholes in the road. And, um, you know, so were they built efficiently and effectively to begin with? You know, let's let's use how did aviation evolve over time? People flew, and when they looked out their window and they saw a mountain or a lake, they flew to that as a point of interest uh, to kind of maintain where they were, right? That's They looked out the window. Then the navigation aids started going in to help them stitch their way across any any piece of air, airspace. But did those navigation aids get put in an effective way to go from point a to point b or was it just conveniently put there because they had access to land um and so you end up with these roadways or highways in the sky that were built that essentially may not have been built in the most effective and efficient manner Um, what this does is creates a common surveillance picture globally um, and, and why do I emphasize that? Well, today, when you put an infrastructure in on the ground, you put it where you can put it. You put it where you can afford to put it. Um, and so you end up with holes in it. You end up with, um, you know, maybe people following the particular pathways and stitching their way through um, the airspace to get to where they need to go. Um, and And that's because they didn't all have a common denominator. They didn't have like a contiguous pathway that could be, you could track an aircraft from the time it departs to the time it lands. And so, yes, there will be improvements in safety, improvement naturally through situational awareness and controllers having a better idea of where the aircraft are, providing the data to the airlines where they can better track their assets. All these things Um, improve decision-making when people make business cases when people dispatch when airlines dispatch their their aircraft they will do so with with knowledge um, a priori right because they essentially can look at the data they can look at the trends they can understand the pushes uh, where the traffic loads are and they can adjust to it and then air navigation service providers because they have surveillance in areas they didn't have can consider um, you know adjusting the separation minimas. Um, and so like if you're in a radar environment um, and it's a long-range radar you can get down to five nautical mile separation between aircraft if you're in the oceanic environment and you don't have any surveillance and it's basically just the pilot using communication the controller and the pilot um, interacting through communications um, they'll use something like 10 minute entrails which can translate to 80 nautical mile separation and they do that to put a safety bubble around the aircraft right so the radar allows you to reduce that safety bubble. So now let's say you go to airspace that's on the ground that doesn't have a radar, but could, they just wasn't cost-effective to deploy it, and you add space-based ADS-B, you can reduce the separation to five nautical mile. Um, why is that important? Well, if you're loading up the tracks, if you're loading up the the airways, um, and everyone wants to go from point A to point B at the same time, that just seems to be a matter of course, um, then you're gonna have demand. Um, you're going to have competition for people wanting to be in the roadway, so it 's rush hour in the morning right? If you told everyone to separate by a hundred feet, uh traffic would be a lot worse um, right because right now everyone separates by one foot <laughs> right and so you know so could you imagine how how much more it would be complicated if you had to maintain? Uh, a certain amount of distance between your car. So just translate that to aircraft. You know, there are people on board, you want it to be safe, so they put safety bubbles around it. If you could reduce the safety bubble, still maintaining safety though, target level safety is very important. You do that by adding these types of technologies. Um, So again, this concept's not new. What we're doing is we're introducing a capability that could never have been introduced in this particular environment. And I think that's an important distinction. the as a service is an important distinction because it helps people leapfrog and, and um, acquire it. We have we have 11 contracts signed as early adopters, and you're looking at countries like you know Africa, countries within the continent of Africa have signed up. Um, you know, Curacao down in the Caribbean. I mean, these are these are island nations that um, are basically able to introduce technology rapidly. Um, and don't have to go through this protracted, um, you know, deployment stage where they have to find land, deploy infrastructure. You know, you have all these other things you have to deal with when you do that. Um, You know, there's always the environmental due diligence and all the other things you have to do. You have to do leasing. So all this kind of decomplicates the installation implementation aspect of it. Um, provides uh, the comparable services that you would have gotten with the pr- other technologies, and and like I said, that the the timeline of it is is impressive, right? Because from the time you order to the time we can deliver, now that we're up and running, um, you know we're, we're we're targeting less than a year. Um, so there is still some work you have to do with the customer to determine what airspace are they interested in deploying in, um, and so you know that year is is being conservative. We believe we can beat it, but that's what we're set up for now. I mean you. where we are in our life cycle we have 11 customers We're we're kind of an upstart here and um, we plan on learning and improving and you know using continuous improvement um, to to kind of uh, you know make everything as and tweak it as fine as we can
1: now um, when will the system be fully operational
0: a great question,
1: right? So we just
0: finished that eighth launch. We uh, kind of fills in the constellation. Um, you know, uh, imagine six orbital planes around the Earth, and we essentially had orbital plane three that had four satellites in it, and it's supposed to have 11. So this launch put 10, the last 10 satellites up for us. Six of those satellites are going to be directed into orbital plane three. to fill in the orbital plane. The remaining four are, are basically parked as spares, and we'll have nine spares in space, and we'll have six spares on the ground. Um, this is because we plan on you know maintaining a service for over 15 years. Um, so it's when you, when you connect the customer up, they want to make sure we're not going anywhere. Uh, you know we're going to continue to provide um, you know our, our service over time. And um, so we are now engaging in um, and we've been testing all along, but the testing has been done with, without having the full traffic load uh, of the globe, right? So over the next month, Um, The satellites will be uh, in place. They will have been validated and tested uh, by Iridium. Um, And then essentially as renters, uh, they hand over our access to our payload. Um, And then we kind of go through our, uh, uh, you know, testing of the final uh, hosted payloads that were on there. Um, And plus we've been testing our ground infrastructure, which is a a series of, you know, um, units or subsystems that are processing the data that we're receiving from, from uh, from the aircraft. Um, And then from that, we uh, when we process it, we redistribute it back to the customers, right? And um, the customers get just their information. We, Aerion, see the world. Um, The customer sees their flight information region. So they only get the data for their flight information region. Um, And so it's kind of like, Comcast model or, you know, any cable TV model. We are collecting the information from space, we are grounding it on the earth, we are distributing that data back out to the individual customers, and we literally set up service delivery point equipment at each customer's facility, and then they connect it to their air traffic control automation system, um, where they, they use it for uh, air traffic control separation. Um, so. You know, the the testing will take us to March of this, this year since we've been doing testing all along, um, but this is like the, the final throes of service acceptance testing and, and validation. Um, we are simultaneously um, uh, engaged with the European Aviation Safety Agency, which is um, essentially chartered with um, regulatory oversight of the industry in Europe, but they also provide a service to companies Um, And so we're kind of getting our certification from a safety perspective, and this is important to our customers because they want to make sure we have, uh, um, you know, the same uh, ideas that the the, the ANSPs have in dealing with um, the community. And what I mean by that is the concept of a just culture, um, if you identify a safety issue, you should feel free to bring that issue up. It should not be hidden. It should not be um, you know, tamped down by any supervisory or management type environment. It should be uh, embraced and it should be addressed, right? Because safety is critical in this environment and, and this function. Um, and, and, you know, there, there, are, there are known uh, activities that have happened in the past in the aviation and space industry um, where that just culture did not exist and um, accidents happened, right, mistakes were made. And so this is part of the environment we're in and um, Ariane has adopted the just culture. Um, We are training all our personnel to understand it and to live in it and to be an extension of the air navigation service provider. So our testing, kind of coincides with a series of audits that we've been going through over the last two years um, that has validated our quality assurance, our configuration management, our security posture, our safety, Um, it looked at our program management, um, our processes, our help desk technicians and how they interact with the customer. Um, All these things have been um, vetted and validated. And um, so we're turning the corner with our fourth audit coming up next month. Um, In February and then the the testing conclusion for oceanic airspace is in March and then we continue on into April where we look at en route which is another piece of airspace. Um, type of airspace and then terminal and so let me explain what those three are because I, I may be using uh, terminology that's not transparent or a little bit ambiguous um, oceanic obviously those highways in the skies over ocean o- ocean um, type uh, environment and route is 18,000 feet and above over terrestrial usually um, and that goes to up to 60,000 feet um, and that there are specific centers with controllers that look at aircraft just in those domain with constrained by those altitudes um, and they aircraft fly uh, with different separations. As I mentioned, the five nautical mile separation is in the en route environment. Terminal is like excuse me, 60 miles around the airport itself. And, um, you know, that's a little bit of a I call a messy environment because you have aircraft leaving en route and coming down to land on the airport, so they're transitioning they're changing uh, speeds they're uh, they're decelerating they're coming down in altitude, and you have the opposite you have people coming out of the airport and going up through terminal to get into the en route airspace so it's a, a little more complicated in that regard um, and so um, the, but the separation happens to be three nautical miles um, and and so you know these domains have different separation minimas. Um, and, you know, the, the, the airspace operates like that today. So ARION is essentially an, um, a technology that will be used as an overlay We have existing capabilities, or it could be used as the sole uh, uh, source of surveillance with, you know, there is no surveillance today.
1: Uh, and so to, to answer the question, though, um, when do you expect the, the system to be fully operational?
0: Yeah, so uh, March for the Oceanic, uh, en route and terminal by May of this year. Okay. All
1: right, so uh, we're a little bit short on time here, but I'm going to try and squeeze in as many questions as I can. Um, So Aerion itself is comprised of six partners. Uh, who all have different uh, stakes within the company, one of them obviously being Iridium, who came up with the concept. Uh, and then after that, there are the air navigation service providers that are the initial partners, uh, which of course includes uh, Nav Canada, uh, ENAV, uh, NATS, Navier, and uh, the IAA, which is the Irish uh, organization. Um, are you going to be bringing in new partners that are going to become uh, equity? Or are you just going to have uh, sign on new um, uh, providers that are customers?
0: Um, great question um, really the board the board of directors would be making that decision instead of the shareholders in the company um, and they would have to decide how to you know they they, they currently occupy a hundred percent and if they want to bring in uh, a new you know equity, Um, sharing uh, partner then they people would have to give up percentages of their shares to do that Um, and so I I can't answer that question but um, you know I would tell you that um, I think we have the progressive air navigation service providers or Ceridium as our backbone, and I think that's another differentiator in this company um, because we're not essentially going to the banks to get money, and they're just interested in their interest, and, and um, we're, we're talking to people who not only are investors, but they're customers. They're using this data, and they're interested in this community because uh, this is a small community, believe it or not, and you know all air navigation service providers have neighboring air navigation service providers, and they want to make sure their airspace is safe because they 're transitioning you know flag aircraft from their country into other airspace, and they want to make sure that you know as they they traverse that other airspace that they 're getting equal and um, equal services, um, not only from an efficiency standpoint, but clearly from a safety perspective. And so it is a, a community of air navigation service providers that they do share um, their techniques and knowledges and, 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 think, and, and, and opportunities. And so I think this is a great example. Um, so I think our current plan is, you know, we're, we're targeting the air navigation service providers that are not customers or investors. Um, to sign up and to be our customers, um, but we're also targeting airlines because we believe this data serves other purposes. Um, and you know, it, and there's then the recent ICAO, um, the global you know distress uh, safety system, essentially dealing with the Malaysia airline disappearance. There was mandates that came out that the airlines have to track their assets. Um, and they have to have a certain update interval and it has to have a certain kind of, you know, distress tracking kind of capability or distress sensing capability. And Arion, while on itself wouldn't be the only solution, but combined with other capabilities, you can create that artifact or that product. And we have uh, joined with, you know, flight aware and, and, and the development of a, a product called Global Beacon, which would address that um, mandate for the airlines. And so, you know, there's a lot of different business models, um, you know, that I think uh can be explored. And um, so we, we are will be researching those types of relationships. Um, and, and so it's not just air navigation service providers. Uh, there's a lot of other customer base
1: out there. Now, with the current uh, air navigation service providers that are shareholders, but also customers. How does that work from a revenue perspective? Well, um, they get charged, you know, per the contract
0: that we signed. And we're pretty um, clear, um, you know, the early adopters uh, knew the risk in in engaging with um, Ariane. Um, and but we've been fair and equitable um, because the acquisition process and these air navigation service providers are are, they're different, but yet they have a common, um, you know, fundamental, uh, you know, grounding in it. And that is to be, um, you know, fair and equitable. And that is to make sure that, um, you know, they're not being gouged. And so they do their due diligence. And um, we have used uh, contracts from one vendor, you know, if appropriate, we've, we've exposed like, you know, what type of contracts we've set up. So it's types of contracting costs that uh, essentially, I would say is, is fairly uh, normalized when we deal with any of our customers. Um, so, you know, how did they rationalize it? Well, the idea was uh, they, they had funds to use. They would normally use it by reinvesting in their infrastructure. Arian is an infrastructure program.
1: Now, uh, Iridium, um, which where this idea came from, um, is getting a one-time hosting fee of $200 million uh, from Arion. Uh, from what I understand, you secured uh, just today, or you announced it today, uh, a $200 million credit facility with Deutsche Bank. Uh, and that uh, you'll have paid iridium 43 million dollars out of the 200 million dollar hosting fee that uh, that you need to pay how, how soon or when do you expect to, to pay down the rest of the hosting fee
0: so I, you know this is um, a series of payments that we'll be making to them and I you know we're Fortunate to have Iridium as our first of all our the mothership. I mean, we actually sit in their space as a startup, and um, you know, they're, they're, we're negotiating through the, um, the the various payment cycles that are required for them to meet their needs. Um, and so, I don't have the the, the exact um, payment the payout schedule with them, and um, they've been very patient with Ariana as we stand up our service. Um and you know and, and so I would say that um it's great that we are able to make that down payment if you want to call it that. Um, a lot of that was based on you know uh, a model put together years ago that has evolved and um You know, this was supposed to be just an oceanic system and now we're talking oceanic and en route and possibly terminal. Um, You know, we've come up with value-add services that will add additional revenues. And then you you made a really great point, and I I, I don't want that to not be understood. You know, closing, um, you know, with Deutsche Bank and being able to acquire or access, um, you know, a fairly large amount of money, and then also it's variable. As we sign more customers, we'll have the ability to to acquire more um, demonstrates that, you know, that was a a two-year due diligence process that um, scrutinized every aspect of the company from the business model to the technical capabilities. And I look at it as we pass mustard. We, we, um, you know, we demonstrated a viable, um, you know, business model that has longevity um, and and um, they were willing to invest um, and and to acquire other investors actually to participate in that right so there's a family of investors um, so I think it's uh it's just another it's another testament to how um, solid the the business plan is.
1: Now I just have uh, two more questions for you um, or actually three. Um, in terms of competitors, um, do you have any or you know, you're the first to, to put these sensors into space. So, uh, do you expect somebody else to come along and try and do the same thing, or, or do you guys have a, a clear runway, as it were, of uh, uh, of business opportunities here? I think we have first
0: mover advantage um, from an opportunity perspective, and I just want to point out we're not just focused on the ocean. We are, you know, out there uh, meeting with ANSPs, and they're deciding, hey, we'd like to use this, you know, on our terrestrial. Uh, like South Africa it's not just the oceanic airspace they were interested in the terrestrial airspace and so we are in competition with people who build terrestrial based surveillance capabilities right off the bat I just want to point that out we're not in this just to do the remote areas and and just to do um, you know the uh, the oceanic areas where you would say well no one else can provide the surveillance so isn't this a monopoly and it's it's not a monopoly Um, what we have is is the first mover advantage and then you know there are uh, other um, you know, deployments that are space based. But the you know, the, the word I kept using and and on purpose was differentiator, right, or discriminator. We did things, we are doing things that make a difference from the world of using it for air traffic control. So can you deploy these in a way in space that maybe doesn't have the robustness and resiliency that we built into the system? The answer is yes. And um, those, those deployments can possibly be used for asset tracking for the airline to meet the uh, ICAO mandate. But um, it's, it's not a trivial um, uh, you know, investment that needs to be made to build a system that has assurance and integrity built into it. Software testing, um, you, know, the EASA certification. Um, all these are, are, are really tough, complex, Um, you know uh, deployment um, milestones that need to be met in order to provide this type of service Um, you know air traffic control is is serious business it's steeped in safety and um, you know the expectations are high um, and and i feel like you know we have addressed those um, those needs those requirements those technical performance measures um, because we're we're steeped in surveillance. This is our business. This is many of the people in this company all worked in one form or another. Either worked in manufacturing. I worked 18 years in the FAA. 15 years before, prior to that, I worked as a, a you know in a manufacturing company building radars. Um, so it's 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 you know we all come from this background, and this is just the evolution of it. And and. It's what compels most of the people in this company to even want to be here because we see the capabilities. We've deployed systems worldwide and went through all types of challenges because of the, the terrestrial-based you know, issues, whether it be poor telco, power, uh, land access, uh, you know, siting buildings, all that kind of stuff are just challenges with terrestrial-based systems. And this like takes all that away. Um, shortens up the deployment cycle and, and gets you right to the meat of what you're trying to do which is integrating it into the air traffic control environment where the not only the hardware processes it and displays it to the controller but the controller has to a- adopt to it it's change management you know, it's a lot of it's a lot of cool change um, but you know still um, there's some challenges so I think competition exists I think um, we have the first mover advantage, and I think we are always looking forward. We got our heads up, but we're, we, we also know what's going on behind us.
1: I have one last business question and then the, the fun question. Um, from uh, the business perspective, um, on, on your website, it mentions four services, the Global Air Traffic Surveillance, which we've talked quite a bit about, Global Beacon, which you mentioned. Uh, we didn't talk about Aerion Alert, um, but I'll cover that in the introduction. Um, what I'm interested in, though, is the Analytical ADSB uh, Data uh, Service. Is, is that something, do you think, that the has the potential to be a substantial revenue generator? I do, I do. I think in some cases, I mentioned earlier,
0: not all air navigation service providers are equal. Um, They also don't have the same amount of airspace or air traffic in their environment. And if we're, uh, you know, providing a service and that service is um, competing with, you know, ground-based systems, um, you could imagine then the revenue we generate from that particular customer may be lower than you would generate with, like, Canada or or the United Kingdom. So, um, you know, from a reference standpoint, I think there's some, um, you know, uh, analytical-type services that can be provided that are probably uh, more than some of those air navigation service providers. Um, And so, you know, a very interesting um, function of, of having surveillance from, you know, departure from the time you kick back, push back from the ramp to the time you land at your destination airport. Is called traffic flow management. Um, it's about tracking the asset from from gate to gate. Um, you know, you hear these terms all the time, and then you hear curb to curb, and you know, there's the whole intermodal uh, concept of you know how do you get to the airport? So do you have rails? Do you have you know subways? You know, what, what's your methodology from getting the person from house to house? You know, so you know this keeps expanding, but you know, let's just start with you know gate to gate. Um, we see in the ramp area. Um, we see in the oceanic area. Well, these two domains were the untapped domains. Um, Because, and and for me, traffic flow management was a a matter of understanding where all assets were at at all times. And there was no one system that could see all assets, all aircraft, right? Um, We see it globally. We know when someone's pushing back. Um, You know, correlating that information with flight plan information really empowers you to have an understanding of how many aircraft are entering the European airspace or the United States airspace or the Canadian airspace at any one given time. And if you're an airport operator, you want to know where are all aircraft plan to come to my airport? Where are they actually? Will they meet plan? Um, do I need to have the appropriate assets in place? If I'm a FedEx or UPS, I want to know where all my assets are because I stage people at the ramp area when they come in to, you know, to trade off with the goods that they need to then redistribute onto other airplanes. Right. So this, this, uh, let's face it, the, this drives the economy. The aviation industry drives the economy. There's no doubt in my mind. Moves people, services, and this traffic flow management concept in itself is big. It's, um, and it has many dimensions to it. You can do the light version or the complicated version, um, and, and um, it doesn't matter to me. It's, it's untapped resources, and even the light version probably will yield um, significant benefits.
1: Hi. So uh, my last question, which has nothing to do with our uh, topic today, is what books, fiction or nonfiction, uh, are you reading or have read recently that you would recommend to our listeners? So, you know, it's part of, uh, I'm, I'm the vice president of
0: engineering, and um, one of my directors, Mike Garcia, had this great idea that we would give books out to our, our team. And so I'm in the throes of reading this particular book. It's called Shackleton's Way, um, and it's it's about Ernest Shackleton, and it's really, you know, something that occurred 100 years ago, really. Um, and it's it's called Leadership Lessons from the Great Antarctic Explorer. Um, and it has to do with exploring down into, into the South Pole and the challenges that existed at the time and how this person um, was able to lead their group through all the the trials and tribulations, and there there were plenty, and nobody died in, in in this expedition. Even though they lost their boat, even though they had to live off the land, and you know they expected to be in a place one year, two years. It took them two years, um, but essentially, um, it, it you know I'm not done with the book. So it, the way it, it it unfolds is is uh, you read a little, and then it gives you like a summary of those leadership lessons, and um, I find it to be. Kind of intriguing because it's just amazing what was done 100 years ago. Um, so, you know, for me, this is this is very exciting. And then any David McCullough book, but specifically the Wright brothers, is a great read um, uh, from the aviation industry standpoint. Again, you look back and you see the Wright brothers develop something and trying to sell it to the country they live in and couldn't seal, they could not get a contract in place. They actually ended up getting their first contract with the French and then the English before they got one with the United States. And I think that's just to me. That's just feels a little bit like what Arion's going through um, when we uh, when, when we come forward with our idea. It seems like a no brainer, but you do find pushback, and not everyone's just saying, "What a great idea! Sign me up!" Um, and so, like any business endeavor, you know, it, it wouldn't it, it has to it has to be hard for it to be good.
1: Well, since you mentioned David McCullough, I'll I'll just throw out there that. Uh uh, his book, The Path Between the Seas uh, on the Pana- Panama Canal, is, is, uh, is an exceptional uh, read. Anyway, Vinny, uh, thank you for being uh, my guest today on the SpaceCube podcast. Uh, as your business develops, I hope I can get you back on the show to track its progress.
0: I think we would love to come back on your show and, and tell you our stories a year from now.
1: Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the SpaceCube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com/spaceq. We really appreciate feedback, and to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca, or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca, where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us, at Canada in Space, and if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.